KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. We have three games left. The rumor has it I was not going to be called up. So, you know, I was kind of preparing to go home, and the manager calls me in the office. He says, Mickey, have a seat. And I'm like, all right, what the heck's going on here? And he goes, uh, the Phillies just traded Tommy Herr. You're going to the big leagues. They have a doubleheader tonight, and you're starting the second game. <laughs> and our guest this week, former Philly second baseman Mickey Morandini, key member of that 1993 National League pennant-winning team, now a club ambassador for the Phils. Mickey, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So let's talk a little bit about your story. Growing up, was baseball always the first love, or were you a play all the sports depending on what the season was type of kid? You know, I was a two-sport guy. I loved basketball and baseball. Those were my two uh, sports that I always played. I tried the football thing, and I just uh, just wasn't into the football thing. But um, really, basketball was my number one sport as a a kid. I just loved playing basketball. I was a huge Magic Johnson fan growing up. But I knew as I got older, basketball probably wasn't going to be the the thing for me. I mean, I was really good at it. I, I led our high school and career points. I still have that honor today. Um, but, uh, you know, my high, I'm, I'm short, um, um, you know, I was a good shooter, but, you know, in today's world, these guys are so athletic and so fast that I knew uh, I wouldn't be able to handle um, playing playing basketball at a professional level. So baseball was my thing, and um, I was always good at it. I always worked at it. I always had fun with it, and uh, fortunate enough for me, I was good enough to make it to the big league. When growing up, do you start to think that you've got a chance to take baseball further than most people? Did you notice a time when you started getting a little more attention, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, going to college, you have hopes, but you never know. I went to Indiana University on a scholarship, and um, I guess after my sophomore year in college, I started to think, hey, maybe uh, you got a chance here. Because my first two years in college, I, I, I really played well, had great numbers. Um, and then the scouts started to start showing up a little bit. And after my junior year, I had another good year in my junior year and uh, got drafted by the Pirates. And um, it was a tough decision for me because I'm, I'm a, a Pittsburgh boy. I grew up just north of Pittsburgh and always was a Pirates fan growing up. And to be drafted by your hometown team, that's, that's pretty awesome. But uh, um, I, had, I, I had a decision to make, and um, it was, it, I wanted to get a chance to play on the Olympic team in, 90, or in 88. Uh, so I went back to school and for my senior year and turned down the Pirates offer to play for them. So uh, it worked out pretty well for me. I think I made the right decision. Yeah, that Olympic team, that was Seoul, right? It was. It was Seoul, Korea. And... Um, I had the honor of playing uh, in the Intercontinental Cup, which is a tournament that was down in Cuba that year. And it's, it's a bunch of uh, national teams come together. And we had formed a, a team of college players to go down there. And our coach was Mark Marquis, who was the big-time coach at Stanford for a long, long time. And um, I played really well down there. So I made a good first impression on him. And I think I led our team in hitting in, in a couple of categories. And so I got that Olympic tryout. Was one of twenty guys to make it, so it was it was uh, obviously pretty uh, a pretty great experience for me. 
Yeah, what was the 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 Seoul Olympic experience? Because it was still, correct me, baseball was a quote-unquote, I think they called it a demonstration sport. You got medals, but they weren't included in the official count, something like that? Yeah, it was the second time we'd been in the Olympics. There was the 84 team that, where the Olympics were in L.A. with McGuire and those guys. But, but uh, yeah, it was still a, a, a you know, soon-to-be sport at that time. And, you know, it was a trial sport. But uh, the experience was unbelievable. We toured the United States that summer once we uh, determined the 20 players and played in a lot of minor league ballparks. And then we went over to Japan for a few weeks. We actually went to Italy for a couple weeks, then Japan for a couple weeks. And then ended up in Seoul, Korea for the Olympics. But the experience was unbelievable. I mean, we had some great players on that team. Jim Abbott, Ben McDonald, Andy Bennis, Charles Nagy, Tino Martinez, Robin Ventura. I mean, the list goes on and on. We had a really solid team. And um, the only bad part about it was Cuba boycotted the Olympics that year. So we didn't get a chance to play against the quote-unquote best international team that was out there at the time. But um, we played really well over there and brought home the gold. You get drafted. You mentioned the getting drafted in 87, 88. The Phillies draft you. Had you developed a relationship with a scout with the Phils? Were you pretty – did you know they were really interested in you, or were you surprised when they pulled the trigger on you? Um, I was a little surprised. I really didn't know. I hadn't really talked to any scouts, to be honest with you, but I knew there were scouts at the game. But uh, the one that was – scouting me at the time was Tony Lucadella, who was a big time scout for the Phillies. He's the one that uh, brought Mike Schmidt on to the Phillies. So uh, he was pretty popular, but uh, uh, I had no idea, you know, it was a lot different back then. I mean, the draft wasn't televised and really the only announced the first round picks. And then um, I hadn't uh, found out till about a week after I got drafted that I got drafted. I finally got a phone call from the Phillies and said they drafted me in the, in the fifth round. So uh, it was an interesting process. Nothing like it is today where they you know, televise it on TV and things like that. So it was pretty nerve wracking at the time. So how's the transition to pro ball and how much does that experience with the Olympic team help the transition to the pros? Because not just the quality of player you've played against, but you've kind of been exposed to a lot of the media things and a lot of the things surrounding the game in, in the pros uh, that maybe a lot of kids in that position wouldn't have been. Yeah, I was as prepared as I could have been. And it was the Olympic experience that gave me that preparation. You know, as you said, the media uh, was always following us The travel um, the travel was pretty rigorous. So I got, you know, I got that under my belt for about four months, um, you know, dealing with teammates and room roomies and um, all kind of different things. And, uh, and, you know, playing, like you said, playing against the best competition in the world, really. So, um, you know, some of those national teams are probably uh, obviously a lot better than an A-ball team or a double-A team over here in the States. So I played a lot against a lot of great competition and, uh, I was prepared and I came into spring training in 89 and, you know, just continued to play well. I, I made an impression in Spartanburg, South Carolina and a ball and moved up to Clearwater in the middle of the summer and played well there and got another call up to double a, uh, in early August and, um, just played really well. I think I hit 360 in double a to finish off that year. So, uh, I made a really good impression on the organization my first year in the minors. When you get the call that you're going to the big leagues, do you remember the the win and the where? 
Oh, absolutely. You'll, I don't think anybody ever forgets that. You know, they, they have the September call-ups, and uh, so it's it's 1990. I played I played in uh, Scranton in 90 with AAA, and I just started to learn second base. I was a shortstop up through AA, and uh, coming into my AAA season, they wanted me to move to second base. So I, I was still learning the position. And so it's uh, we have three games left in the AAA season, and uh, the rumor has it I was not going to be called up. So, you know, I was kind of preparing to go home and take a little break and, and uh, you know, spend my uh, winters at home. And um, the, the manager calls me in the office right after batting practice. It was Bill Dancy. And he uh, he says, Mickey, have a seat. And I'm like, all right, what the heck's going on here? And he goes, uh, the Phillies just traded Tommy Herr. You're going to the big leagues. They have a doubleheader tonight, and you're starting the second game. <laughs> so it was uh, – it was uh, Obviously, all kind of emotions are going through you at that time. You're nervous. You're happy. You're excited. You're scared to death. And uh, so I packed my bags, drove to Philly, and I get there uh, in the middle of the first game. And uh, we're playing the Padres, and I end up pinch hitting in that first game in like the I think it was the eighth or ninth inning. And I, I, uh, my first at bat was against Eric Shaw, and I hit a line drive on a full count to. Uh, Freddie Lynn in left field at the time. And then the uh, game went extra innings, and I got my second at bat off Greg Harris. I singled to right field. Uh, next batter bunted me over, and John Crock singled me home for the winning run. So I go from AAA, you know, playing a game, getting ready to go home, to getting my first big league hit and scoring the winning run in my first game, uh, which was obviously pretty exciting. What? How long did it take for it all to feel real because of just that kind of whirlwind? I mean – was there a moment sometime that week when you kind of take a step back and look around and like, oh, my goodness, I'm in the big leagues? Well, I know I did that when I walked into the clubhouse and I walked into the dugout for the first time. You know, you're looking like, oh, my God, here I am. I did it. And uh, but, you know, the, the, a lot of times they say the easy, it's a lot easier to get there than it is to stay there. So my main concern was trying to make an impression in that in that one month I was going to be there. Um, and to be honest with you, I didn't make a very good impression. I really struggled offensively. Um, I was hitting about a buck 50 with two games left and we're, we're playing the Cubs and I got to face Maddox and Belecki to, uh, one really good pitcher and Belecki was pretty darn good back in the day too. So, uh, you know, I'm hitting 150 and I'm going home in a couple of days and obviously that's not going to be a very good confidence boost over the off season. I go four for four off Belecki and two for four off Maddox end up six for eight that weekend and my average jumped up to almost 250 so that was that was really a big moment in my baseball career where I went home and said all right instead of thinking man I don't know if I belong in the big leagues or not to thinking hey I can do this you know and uh, that offseason was very important for me. So you become basically a, a regular position player a regular second baseman before we get a how did you did you think you would eventually end up at second base? You had been you'd mentioned you had been at shortstop. Yeah. Did you think that was your future or did you think you'd end up at second or maybe something more versatile where you could move all over? You know, I always thought I was going to be a shortstop. I was a shortstop my whole life up through um double a really and uh you know they said that they just didn't think my arm strength was going to play in the big leagues and i was and they were like if you want to get to the big leagues faster i think you can get there faster playing second base so i'm like 
All right, let's do it. And, uh, you know, fortunate enough for me, I learned second pretty quickly. Really, the biggest thing is, is turning the double play. It's completely different, obviously, from the shortstop side. So once I got that down, um, second base came pretty easily to me. So um, I didn't care how what position I played, to be honest with you. I just wanted to get to the big leagues and stay. So first couple years in the big leagues, the team doesn't have a ton of success. But then 93 – comes and you're a key part of that team that wins the national league pennant take me to early 1993 february march april when do you look around and start to think hey you know what this feels a little different i think we've we've got something here yeah it was it was a weird spring training because we had brought in a lot of you know instead of lee thomas going out and getting a superstar he brought in about four or five just really solid players milt thompson inca villia eisenreich danny jackson those types of players you know guys that uh you know they weren't superstars or you know mega million type players but they were really solid players and had good careers um but we weren't picked in any publication across the country to do anything. I mean, most of them had us coming in last again. And uh, we had an incident in spring training, late spring training. We were playing the Cardinals, and uh, Donovan Osborne hits a couple guys, ends up hitting Dave Hollins. And that's the wrong thing to do back in the day was hit Dave Hollins. So Hollins comes back to the dugout. Tommy Green's pitching that day, and he says, you know what you got to do. Tommy's like, I got this. So Tommy goes out. It just so happened Donovan Osborne was leading off the next inning, and Tommy drilled him right in the rib cage, and sent a message to him. Well, Osborne, because they were lengthening the pitchers out at the time, stayed in the game and hit Ricky Jordan up high, and the benches cleared, and you know all ruckus, you know, followed, and uh, we really became a unit after that. We really became really close. And uh, we kind of took off from that point on. Then we sweep the Astros in Houston to start the season. We come home and have like a six and one homestand. So all of a sudden now we're nine and one or eight and one, something like that. Now the fans are starting to, you know, get bigger and bigger. And we're starting to believe that something special is happening here. And we just carried it on throughout the entire season. It was just a, one of those magical years. Yeah. And I can say as someone, I was a freshman going into sophomore in college watching that and it was magical and you felt like every two weeks something happened that you were going to remember forever as someone who was in the middle of it what are some of the games from that season some of the moments that you'll never forget yeah there were a lot of games that year that uh, stick out in my mind uh we had a west coast trip in may where milt thompson made a leaping catch over the fence to save a grand slam and we end up winning that game the next day i make a diving catch up the middle with mitch on the mound trying to get a save turn a double play end up winning that game um we had a game against the giants brian hickerson on the mound left-handed pitcher for the giants we're winning we're down seven nothing at home and I think it was West Chamberlain hit an absolute bullet up the middle, and he just happened to stick his glove up and catch it. And he looks in our dugout and slams the ball down as he's looking in our dugout, like, you know, and we didn't like that very much. We ended up coming back and winning that game late in the game. Um, and then the Mariano Duncan home run off Lee Smith uh, as, the, as the Cardinals were starting to make a little run at us. And uh, so, and then obviously the, the 4.41 a.m doubleheader game where Mitch hits the, the base hit. But uh, there's a, there were so many games that uh, stick out in my mind from that year. And then, uh, obviously, game six of the Braves uh, 
uh, NLCS game where I hit the triple down the line to kind of solo in. That's probably the one that sticks out the most. What was that year like? Because one of the things that was interesting about that year, you had you and Mariano Duncan platooning at second. You had platoons in the outfield. And it just felt like that entire season, everybody knew exactly what was expected of them. Everybody knew exactly when they were going to play, who they were going to play against. How big was that, that everybody had roles that were really kind of cemented in almost from opening day? That was huge. It was huge. And the six guys that were platooning, me, Dunkey, Wes, and Eisenreich, and Milton, Inky, we all bought into it. And, and, and that was huge because, you know, you have athletes that don't buy into what your manager's trying to do. It can obviously create a lot of frustration in the clubhouse. But uh, we all bought into it. And, and it helped that we got off to such a great start. I mean, that's obviously a bit, if we were one and nine at the time and we're all platooning, who knows uh, what would have happened. But, you know, we get off to that nine and one start. Everybody's playing. Um, everybody's happy. Everybody's playing well. And um, it worked. Um, you don't see it work very often, a, a, a you know, platoon like that. But it worked for us. And, and a part of the reason it worked was because, you know, all the lefties just crushed the right handed pitchers and all the right handed hitters crushed the left handed pitchers. So, uh, it, it was one of those years where everything worked. and But, uh, you know, you give a lot of credit to Jim Fergosi. He was a great manager. He knew he knew how to use his talent. He knew how to put his players in position to succeed. And that's kind of what he was doing with this platoon system was he's putting his players in a position to succeed. And, and like I said, it worked. And we had a great leader in Darren Dalton, who, for me, was the all-time uh, ultimate uh, clubhouse leader. And like I said, everything just meshed. We got along well. And uh, obviously, like I said, winning helps. Time to take a break on one-on-one. We will have more with former Philly Mickey Morandini right after this. Hey, everybody. It's Cherry Gregg here. You may know me around town as KYW News Radio's community affairs reporter. But every week, I produce and host Flashpoint, a podcast where we highlight the hot topics in Philadelphia, local newsmakers, and changemakers burning things up in our region. From gerrymandering to gender equality and policing in schools, we'll walk you through the flames on Flashpoint. It's available wherever you downloaded this podcast that you're listening to now. So subscribe. Thanks so much. And we are back on One on One. Our guest this week, former Philly, Mickey Morandini. So let's go to the playoff series, the NLCS against the Braves. You guys win the first game, lose the next two. What's the what's the clubhouse like after game three? Because you guys got hit around in two and three, and it looked from the outside like, you know, all right, it looks like maybe the Braves are going to take control of this. But what was the feel going into that fourth game? I think that was the one Danny Jackson pitched. Yeah, we were we were never down or out or, you know, feeling bad. We, all, we had a lot of confidence. We, we knew we could beat the Braves because we had done it, you know, in, in that year a lot. And uh, we knew we were very talented. We knew our pitching staff was good. I mean, every one of our starters had at least 12 wins that year. So we were very confident in our pitching staff. And we just stayed positive. And once again, great leadership in the clubhouse kept us on the right track. And um, we knew it was going to be a battle. I mean, no one. There wasn't one person that thought we, were, we could beat the Braves, um, other than us guys in that clubhouse. And um, I don't know if they took us lightly or not, but uh, it was a mistake, obviously, if they did. Was there a moment in that series when you realized we're going to do it? It's going to happen. Was it when you hit that triple and you're standing on third? I think it was bottom of the sixth inning. You're up six to one. Did you 
kind of get that, I think we're going to do this. You know, I think when Lenny hit the home run in Atlanta in game five to give us the win, I think that's when we really felt like, all right, we're, this is going to happen because that gave us the 3-2 lead. Um, and then we were coming home, you know, for, for a game. So that's when I, uh, I think it, everybody was like, all right, this is ours, ours for the taking. And uh, we knew we had to face Maddox, who obviously was an unbelievable pitcher. But we had had some success off of him. And, um, you know, I hit the line drive off his leg in the first inning, which I, I do think made an impact on that game. And I, thought, I think he started to fill that later in the game. And um, he left a couple pitches up to uh, Hollins and Dutch. And then he hung a change up to me. And, you know, it was just – to play at Vet Stadium in front of fifty thousand screaming Philly fans, I'll never forget it. There was, there was there will never be a feeling like that again. Yeah, how long did did you guys were you able to bask in that? I mean, obviously that night. How how many days was it? Just kind of this celebration of what you had done. Still had work to do, but yeah. you guys had done something special already. I'm- I mean, I just – I really think that night we were so focused on getting to the World Series and winning the World Series. We, we we had fun that night, that's for sure. But the next day, I mean, we didn't have a lot of time to, uh, um, you know, party and, and, and enjoy it. We knew we had to face a Blue Jay team that was unbelievable. I mean, that offense they threw up there was, you know, nothing but all-stars and Hall of Famers. So we knew we had to – uh, another challenge, a big challenge, and we once we uh, beat the Braves, we moved on and we're ready for that next uh, series. And obviously everybody talks about and references the Joe Carter home run, but for my money, it was game four that sticks, that absolutely is the, the reason why things went the way they did, the 15-14 game. You know, we talk about all the good times. What was it like being around there where you guys just – never could quite shut the door. I mean, a historically offensive team. I mean, that Blue Jays team, like you said, was loaded. But how difficult was that? That was devastating. It was. That loss was devastating. It was a crappy night. It was rainy all night, misty. It was chilly. Um, but we had that 14-9 to lead going into the eighth, and we are thinking, all right, this series is tied. We're in good shape. Um, we got Schilling on the mound. You know, coming up here, uh, things are looking good for us, and just we just couldn't hold it. The, the Blue Jays lineup just kept coming at us and coming at us, and um, we just couldn't hold that lead. And it was devastating. You know, two-two, obviously, and I'm not saying anything real wise here, but two-two is so much more important than three-one. It's so hard to come back from a three-one deficit. I don't care who you are in baseball, and um, you know, and uh, it was the most devastating loss of that series. And, and uh, you said that was more devastating than the home run from Carter. I, I believe it, too. After Carter hits the home run, did you guys did you guys think – I mean, obviously there's the devastation of losing the World Series, but there's the context of what a special season it was. Do you think you'll be back, or deep down do you feel like this window for this group was pretty narrow? Well, I mean, within a time frame after the game ended, I don't think anybody thought about the following year. We were devastated. That clubhouse was about as quiet as I had ever seen it. Um, everybody's heads was down. There were even some tears shed in there. That's how devastating of a loss it was. But uh, um, I think we felt we could come back and do it again. I mean, we were an older team for the most part, but not 
old, old, you know, in a sense that most guys are in their forties. I mean, we still had guys in the primes of their careers and, you know, like the, the platoon players. I mean, we were all, you know, healthy and, and fairly young and, you know, 30, I was 27 at the time, I believe. And, you know, Milton, Inky and I, you were probably in there, you know, 32, 33, something like that, which, which in baseball is not super old. So I think we felt like we could come back, but uh, I think injuries uh, really took a toll on us in 94 and kind of wiped that thought out pretty quickly. You make the all-star team in 1995. What was that experience like? Awesome. Um, you know, it's, you know, you have goal. I wasn't a big goal guy because I think goals sometimes puts a lot of pressure on you to, to do things. I just wanted to go out, play hard every day, try and win every game. Uh, but to make the all-star team, um, it was pretty special. Um, you know, we went out to uh, Texas where the all-star game was, and I'm in the same locker room with Barry Bonds and all the great players. Uh, it was it was special. I really enjoyed it. It was weird because that all-star game, we had three hits as a team, that, that all-star game. They were all three solo home runs, and we ended up winning the game three to two. So uh, it was it was awesome. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Being on the same field with those guys, it was, it was truly remarkable. So you spend most of your career with the <laughs> Phillies. In December of 97, you get traded to the Cubs for Doug Glanville. Did you, I don't know if anticipate the word, did you have a feeling that something might be up or did that hit you out of left field? That kind of hit me. Um, like I said, I wasn't a big goal guy, but one goal I had was I was creeping up on Tony Taylor's uh, most games played at second base at the time. I was about, I think I was about 180 away or so. Um, so it was a very reachable uh, goal. Um, and then I get traded. Um, now I will say this, if I had to get traded, the Cubs was the team I would want to get traded to for the reason is I lived just South of Chicago. My wife grew up in Valparaiso, Indiana. So I, we weren't far from Chicago. That's where we lived in the off season. So it was, it was good for me to get traded there because then I could live at home and didn't have to disrupt the young kids and things like that. But, uh, it was disappointing because I, I loved playing in Philadelphia. I had a good rapport with the media. I had a good rapport with the fans. Um, I think they really enjoyed the way I played the game. And, and then uh, I get traded. So And it was three days before Christmas. So <laughs> I don't know if it was a good Christmas present or not. But uh, uh, it, it kind of it, uh, it surprised me. I'll, I'll say that. When do you start thinking – about the possibility of coaching, managing. Are you still playing as your playing days are winding down and you think that might be something I could be interested in or was it kind of a separate conversation that comes when the opportunity arises? Yeah, I think it was a separate conversation. Um, you know, I had a torn rotator cuff that kind of ended my career. I really wasn't quite yet ready to hang it up. I was 34 and I was in Blue Jays camp. Um, and I uh, had a torn rotator cuff, and I tried to play through it in spring training. and just couldn't. It was too painful. So I had to make the decision at 34, do you want to go have surgery and go through a year's rehab and try and come back at 35? Um, I had three young boys at the time, so I made a decision that, uh, you know, maybe this was my calling. I better it's time to uh, move on from baseball, and it's never an easy choice. You know, you always hear most ball, ball players want to, 
go out in their own way, you know, when it's time, they don't want to go out with an injury. So I, I wasn't fortunate enough to be able to do that, but, um, you know, I stayed away from the game for about nine, eight or nine years and, um, Ruben Amaro called me and, and, uh, I, you know, I think as, as time went on, I started thinking about coaching cause I coached my kids in all their youth activities, travel ball, um, things like that. I coached some high school baseball for four years after that. Um, so I started to think about coaching, uh, professionally. And then Ruben called me and said, Hey, we got an opening in, uh, um, you know, the minor leagues as a manager, would you be interested? And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what, it's time. My kids were a little bit older now. I felt that they could deal with me being away for a little bit. And I jumped on it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I really loved coaching. You were manager, I think, at Williamsport and then several handful of years at Lakewood. Am I correct? Yeah, it was one a year in Williamsport, two years in Lakewood. I managed. Then I went to AAA as a bench coach, and then uh, – moved on to double A as a hitting coach because the hitting coach, his wife was sick that year. So I was filling in for him. So I got five years of coaching in the Meyer leagues at uh, various roles. And like I said, I really enjoyed it. Um, the, The bad part about it was at the time is when we were probably had one of the worst minor league systems, uh, in baseball, just the talent wasn't there. So, uh, it was a grind, a lot of losing, uh, obviously, which is never fun. You're taking those long bus rides. At least you could win some games, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was fun for me. I enjoyed it. I had a great group group of kids, the, you know, Mikel Franco and Altier and um, those types of players that uh, that ended up getting to the big leagues, and hopefully uh, I had a little bit of part in, in getting them there. What was your, your favorite part of that? Was it the, the teaching? Was it the camaraderie? You know, was it? seventh inning tie game, making decisions. What what would you say was your favorite part? My favorite part was seeing the growth of the, the player, seeing him get better because um, you feel like you, you had a big part of that. The one thing about managing in, in the lower levels especially is you don't, you don't really make a lot of decisions as a manager. Those decisions are made for you. You know, every pitcher was on a certain pitch limit and, um, you know, you were told – for the most part, who's going to play every day and things like that. So as a manager in the lower levels, um, you don't make a lot of big decisions, to be honest with you. You may send up a pinch hitter here and there, but overall you're kind of – you have guidelines that you need to follow with each player. But um, for me, it was just seeing each each player, uh, especially the, the high prospects, just seeing them improve and get better. I want to go back to your playing days real quick. We talked about 93, but in 92, you made one of the coolest plays I've ever seen, that unassisted triple play in Pittsburgh. And it happened so fast. Catch a line drive, everybody's running, and it was basically, I don't know, touched second, then touched the the runner or vice versa. But are you thinking on that play, well, if they hit a line drive, I got a chance to get three, or is it just all reflexive all the way down? Yeah, I really wasn't thinking it because normally with no outs, you really don't send the runners too often because of that reason, because of the line drive possibility and and getting more than one out. So I wasn't even remotely thinking about a triple play or anything. But, um, you know, Leland sent him with the full count. And like you said, I bet the play lasted all of really maybe four seconds total because it was a bullet. King hit a bullet. I dove for it. I was probably three steps from second base, tramp on second, and Bonds is standing right there to tag him for the third out. But um, at the time, 
really all I thought was, all right, we got out of this inning without any runs scoring. And then, uh, you know, I think we ended up losing an extra innings. And after the game, the reporters all come up to me, and I'm like, why are they coming up to me? I didn't have any hits that game. I had nothing to do with the win or the loss, really. Um, and then they told me I was the ninth player to turn an unassisted triple play, and I was the first second baseman to do it in the regular season. So um, turned out obviously to be a, a very, very special moment for me. Um, and I'm from Pittsburgh, like I said, so I got to do it in front of family and friends, which was really cool. A lot of success at a lot of different levels in the game of baseball. How do you look back on your career uh, to to this point? Because, I mean, obviously you're still involved, but uh, how do you look back at your years in the game? You know, I, I look back and say I, I got the most out of my talent. You know, I, I really did. I'm a 5'11 guy that didn't have a lot of power. Didn't have the strongest arm, um, could run. I, I had some wheels, but I'm by no means the fastest guy that ever played the game. So I got the most out of my ability. I worked really hard at it. Um, but I look back at my career, I, I won an Olympic gold medal. I'm the 14th best defensive player in the history of baseball, which is really cool. I, may, I played in a World Series. I turned an unassisted triple play. I made an all-star game. I mean, I look back, you know, if, if I was an 18-year-old kid and someone told me these are what you're going to accomplish in your baseball career, I think I'd be pretty darn excited. So I, I was real happy with uh, with what happened. And I just wished I could have played a little bit longer. I didn't want to retire, like I said, when I did. But overall, I'm, I'm thrilled with the way my career went. Mickey Morandini, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. And that will do it for this episode of One on One. Want to thank former Philly Mickey Morandini for being our guest. If you want to help us out, if you like the podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks again for listening. We'll have another episode coming out soon. Appreciate your support.